Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the music discovery app that streams better music for serious listeners. Here we explore and get to know the creators of that music. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. singer-songwriter Albatross, real name Adam Stockdale, and uh, he's a true Renaissance man. Um, he's not only a, an amazing singer-songwriter with a couple of wonderful albums to his credit, but he's been trusted to be a guitar tech for some of the, the biggest and best names in Americana, Mumford & Sons, the Avett Brothers, Jason Isbell, uh, and he's also a, a skilled enough carpenter and woodworker uh, to have converted uh, an old school bus into a, a really uh, beautiful living space uh, and even recording space. There's a studio in this thing uh, for himself. And uh, so we've, we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. And uh, it's great to have you here, Adam. Thanks very much, man. Happy to be here. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. Kind, kind words. Uh, I, I would like you to paint us a picture of what, uh, life is like, uh, at this, at this moment, uh, on the bus. I'm fascinated. Um, quiet. Uh, I kind of like it right now. My partner, Jess is back in England. We're dealing with some, some prolonged visa wait times because of COVID for obvious reasons. Um, mm. and so it's just me and my dog. And, uh, and even though I'm, I'm on like a four acre property, uh, that some friends own whilst I help them renovate an old mining house. It's like 1856 or something. Um, and so it's a big enough space where I can kind of have my little zone and the bus is kind of my place. And even when, you know, in the midst of, I mean, it's pretty chill there the majority of the time, but because they're obviously working on a big house and a big property, um, you know, there's kind of people coming and going to do stuff. So, you know, even even though there can be some sort of chaos with stuff going on there, generally it's just really relaxing and, you know, it feels good to get out of the city 
it was a it was a long road um leaving nashville and again like covid obviously sort of basically changed all the parameters with regards to our timelines and the bus timelines and stuff like that so after almost probably three or four years of planning about a year and a half working on the bus and then um finally being able to kind of get to a point where we were we were ready to be able to sort of take that long road trip west um and then yeah we, i've been been here in the forest since may um, the forest of california yes it's it's a uh, tahoe national forest um mm-hmm. so we're not actually that close to the lake which is you know probably a good thing just because obviously that has its own kind of crowd that comes in um for i guess skiing in in the winter and then like paddle boarding and golfing and mountain biking and stuff in the summer so it's nice to be close enough to be able to go there in a day comfortably but then nice to not be too close that you kind of you get swept into the sort of tourist crowd so uh, uh, so you don't want to get assaulted by a paddleboarder. Those people are ruthless. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I actually have one, so maybe I'm that guy. But um... <laughs> I, I made fun of them ruthlessly after I moved to Seattle because everybody was on them. I thought, That's the dumbest thing ever. And then I tried it last year, and I own two now. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? I'm embarrassed yeah, to say. <laughs> yeah I, I love it, man. And I was like, you know, I was so landlocked. I was like, I need something to get me on the water. And it, it was great. I bought an X-Rental. It was pretty cheap. So was the was the ultimate plan to to – head for the West Coast and stay there? Or, or were you planning to be, uh, obviously, you converted a bus into a living space and a small recording, recording studio. So you you were capable of being mobile to anywhere uh, in, uh, in in North America. Uh, is the plan to, to stay put for a while or do you plan to, to keep, keep this uh, bus moving? Our plan was actually to go to Alaska. Um, but when I spoke to my buddy Marcus, who had like picked up this property and in um northern california he was like well we kind of need some help and we're basically kind of on the way um he was like you know you can just park your bus here you'll have everything you need you can help us as long as it works for us and for you and then so i mean that's somewhere we're really like we really feel is like calling us and we both really want to spend some time and rain and um it's also a place that's like you know affordable you know you can buy land they pay you to to own land there it's not much but you know probably covers at least your taxes and stuff yeah we're much much better in the colder climate much better in a more rural climate um sure. i don't think our plan is ever to to constantly be on the move of the bus but yeah obviously the fact that you you can just pick up and go somewhere else is is you know definitely part of the appeal um so long term we don't know um yeah and we'll post some pictures on on social media of this, but you, you know, there's like a you attached a van top, right to the top, so that you have a yeah. little bit of a loft, and it's it's a pretty cool it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, thanks, man. Like we we were really stoked on it. I mean, I had kind of always been, you know, a little bit of a kind of a vagabond. So, you know, and obviously you have to have a little bit in that, I think, to be able to stand touring for so long. Anyway, otherwise it would just drive you crazy. But, um, you know, like. I'd always been fascinated by this kind of like, you know, just completely sort of self-sustainable bogan lifestyles where people, you know, can live on nothing. Like I've had such a long and and uh, kind of, um, you know, well, I mean, I guess it's complicated by default, but I've struggled with, you know, mental health stuff pretty much my whole adult life. And I think after, you know, many years of trying to deal with that in different ways, 
and then making some positive breakthroughs with lifestyle choices and you know doing therapy and microdosing and trying loads of different things which you know were all good over time i think one of the the big kind of realizations for me was like basically sort of decluttering my life in any way possible not not just possessions but i just wanted a simpler life um and i kind of got in this situation where like you know living in nashville became so expensive i was kind of having to sort of do more of the stuff i didn't want to do to be able to sustain a lifestyle there that i didn't really want anyway so it was a matter of like mass change really and so you know the bus obviously is something that forces you to purge which i would encourage anyone to do when you're feeling like you're just surrounded by too much stuff that creates like noise so you know i sold i mean more well more than half the stuff i owned probably i was i basically me and jess spoke and we were like if it don't fit in the bus we don't need it so um and obviously as with all musicians i'm sure you're the same here and like you know you, you just collect gear you know and i've always been told you know the more space you have the more you you know the more shit you get you're, you're always going to fill the capacity right. of whatever your surroundings is well actually i purposely bought the smallest uh, pedal board the pedal train had <laughs> this is, if, if it won't fit on there i don't need it yeah no i i think in life it's just a general general good philosophy like um you know i mean don't get me wrong buying music gear and especially like years of touring that allowed me to pick up you know bargains here and there all over the world yeah. And and having vintage gear, which obviously retains some value, you can rent it out, you can use it for studio, whatever. Like, no regrets on buying that stuff. I think it was a good investment, but it is easy to, you know, collect a lot of that. And then when you sort of start to live tiny, you, you realize that you're kind of like, well, I can't keep all of this. So what do I, what can I not live without? And so for the first time ever, when, when I rolled out of Nashville, it like almost brought a tear to my eye. I was like, the the bus has like the shittest stereo you have ever heard in your life. But I had like cranked it to ten. I like I can't remember what I had on, but like some good like probably like the Eagles or something like you know, good, good driving tunes. Right. And that and that last little hour of that journey, it was dark, which I absolutely didn't want to do the first journey in the dark. But it took so long during the day to get everything ready. By the time I got there, it was pretty late. And that last little bit it was just like. You know, one of those rare moments of like completely unadulterated um, elation. I was just like, I just felt this like wash of calm come over me, and I was like, finally, I'm out, and everything I own for the first time ever is is on these six wheels with me, and and it felt amazing to be honest. Um, well, I'm very interested in uh, hearing more about uh, the Vagabond lifestyle and in particular how you also have incorporated uh, music and music recording into it. But I would, if you'll permit me, I'd like to take it back to across uh, the other side of the pond where this all started and kind of how you got your start in music and what inspired you to, to begin this journey in the first place. Um, I, I grew up in a pretty musical family. I mean, no one that did anything, you know, super significant i mean whatever that means to you but you know people that always played my dad had three brothers all of them played my dad played like rhythm guitar and sang and my uncle played kind of lead guitar and did bvs the bgvs whether i think you call them here um mm -hmm. and then the, the one of the other brothers was a drummer and the other brother was a bass player and a singer so those guys had obviously grew up playing together 
and at my grandma's house we used to call it the hut but it was basically just like a kind of you know sort of like a barn or a shed down the end of the garden and they always had like a full band set up in there um not many people in the uk have garages so it's you know it's not I mean, some people do, but it's not anywhere near as common as it is here. So it was kind of our equivalent of having a, a garage band or whatever. And um, so whenever I went there from like the youngest age I can remember, really, you know, I, I would, you know, always want to say hi to my nan and granddad. And then I was like, can I go down the hut? And I would like play the drums and then I'd put the drumsticks down and run over and play the bass. And You know, like well, the one thing I never was really interested in or confident about as a kid was singing for sure. But. Um, but like in terms of just being around music all the time, it was, it was always there. Like my dad had another band with some friends that were aside from his brothers and they used to do like RAF bases and like kind of big function shows and stuff. I was going to ask you what, one of the, uh, the, the tunes off the, uh, the, the new record uh, on the run uh, which I immediately gravitated to because you got Jerry Douglas to play Dobro on it. Was, yeah, uh, long was after the money's gone. <laughs> no, I, I will listen to anything that guy's on. He can do like one note on your recording and like suddenly makes it gold. I know, it's unbelievable, yeah. But uh, I gravitated to, the, to that song because I knew he was on it, but I really got into uh, the, the story and the lyrics of that tune. And you know, forgive me, Brian and I have a tendency to do some forensics on the lyrics, but there's, yeah, no, one, it's not, it's not there's one there, there's... You talk about, uh, you know, realizing the dream my father left behind. And I see uh, he's proud of me when I look in his eyes. It's the gift that keeps on giving. There's always more down that well-trodden path. The wall have gone before. And I hope I'm realizing the dream my father left behind. And I can see he's proud of me when I look in his eyes. Well, it ain't never made no sense to me To base choices on where you think some money will be It's the things that make you happy you should rely upon Cause they'll still be there long after the money's gone They'll still be there long after the money's gone. Uh, did you do you feel like you're kind of uh, embarking on a journey that 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 he kind of felt like he uh, he would have done himself? Yeah, it's funny we've talked about it a lot because like he does live quite vicariously now because obviously he's long since kind of. I mean, every now and again he'll do karaoke or we get up and sing with a pub band that are like friends of his or whatever. But you know, he's he's long since sort of left that part of his life behind um and so you know he's always been incredibly supportive and you know like I said he was the one that kind of got me got me into it to begin with like that that band that he played with Oasis the bass player in that band used to make guitars so when I was like four dad um got the bass player to make like a this is you know this was 1989 so it wasn't like you could go into any guitar shop and buy like a miniature guitar they didn't really exist then Mm -hmm. um so this guy built me like a, a custom kind of strat that only had like the top four strings because obviously i was only four i couldn't it didn't have very big hands and stuff so i just learned to play on a basically a four string guitar that was 
the top four strings of a regular guitar. Um, and he was the one that gave me a, you know, a big stack of records and, you know, put a record player in my bedroom when I was like seven or eight. And that was like dire straits and all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, I was really lucky from, from that point of view. So we've always shared that bond because, you know, he was my kind of, you know, he was my doorway into it. And even though, you know, I've gone a lot deeper in many ways than he did, like, you know, he's still the reason I was ever pointed in that direction. So I think there's always that real strong synergy between him and I. But you know, the few times I have I have asked him about it, he's he's never really alluded to whether he would have kind of like just, you know, down tools and gone on the road if he'd had a chance or whatever. And also like from a creative point of view, he never really said he had much interest in writing. His thing was always like, you know, I love playing songs that I love to people that love those songs too. And, you know, it was a different kind of connection for him, I guess. Um, When did you start doing that? When did I start doing it? When when did you start writing? Um, I mean, I, I feel like I always was very interested in like, compositional writing but um but when i was a kid i was really really shy like um super shy like even when i kind of joined the sort of family cover band you know i was the guy that would stand at the back or hide behind the curtain or whatever like i I could always play i like i was already a relatively good guitar player by the time i was like 15 when i was kind of starting to play in pubs and stuff but i just didn't i never liked the limelight i was always quite nervous all i wanted to do was play and all I really cared about was whether I thought I'd played well afterwards, you know? So my, my kind of introduction into performing and stuff maybe wasn't the reason most people do it. I mean, I think if you have a yearning for like, I can't wait to get on stage. Normally the reason is because you want the connection of how it feels to have an audience and perform for them. Um, and that, that was never really my priority. I just wanted to play all the time. And the only way you could play more was to be in a band. So, and also even, probably up until the age of about 18 or maybe even 19, like I went deep down the guitar, you know, rabbit hole. Like, you know, I, I always appreciated songs and I always loved other instruments cause I was around them. And I, you know, even within guitar playing, I was always fascinated by like the rhythm and the melody and things which, you know, aren't always, you know, everybody's priority when they pick up a guitar, you know, some people play in a band, but they only really care about what the guitar does in the band. Whereas I was kind of like, well, how do all these things fit together and why is that a good recipe? Mm. But that didn't really sort of come through in my trajectory until until later on after I'd gone really far down the guitar route. Um, you know, all I cared about was, you know, being really good at guitar and being able to play really good solos and yeah you know understand the gear the pedals um you know i just i I, I was just fascinated by everything about it and so was the um combination of your interest and competency at guitar um and your kind of shyness and and reticence to to take center stage the recipe that that brought you toward being a tech and kind of working in that behind the scenes role i mean I guess in terms of like um, the the interest I had in it leading to having skills in it, definitely. But, um, but you know, with absolutely no disrespect to anyone who is a tech, I, I never wanted to do it. And for, for our listeners that, that don't know what a, what a guitar tech does and, and Adam, maybe I should just, I'll just ask you to describe it briefly. <laughs> I mean, I'm supposed to be the guy, I guess, that 
is never seen and, and nothing ever goes wrong. Um, <laughs> but to, to most people, like my dad was, you know, he's kind of sometimes he's like that really annoying, proud dad. I love it. And, I, you know, I couldn't be more thankful for him and for the fact he supports me. But, you know, he'd take like videos to my grandma's house if I was like working a festival or something. And like he'd try and pause it on like the one little section that, where I'm like, you know, running on the from guitar the side. The yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah. there he is. That's what he does. And everyone's like, well, I don't really know what that is. But, but you take care of the guitars and make sure they're ready to be played. Hand, hand the different guitar to the player between songs if necessary. That sort of thing, right? Make sure. But also realize realize the, the the sound that they want and the tone and the voice of their instrument on stage and try to uh, in the most optimal way possible uh, realize that sound for every stage they're on. Yeah, that was my favorite part of it because the what the downside of being a tech compared to being like front of house or lights or even monitors to a certain degree is that once you've kind of been with a band a little bit and you've kind of solved all the problems they're having and stuff like that, teching is not very creative anymore. It's just kind of like maintaining. Um, and even though I like some elements of that too because I'm a bit OCD, so you know I like I like to be tidy, I like to be organized, I like to know where everything is which is probably why I did well at it just because, you know, that was, you know, kind of some of the qualities that meant that quite often things didn't, didn't go wrong because you were prepared. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, like I always felt that like the, the creativity kind of went out of it after a few months with a band and that's when it started to get a little bit boring for me because it was like routine, even though I loved the kind of, you know, being the kind of tone guru. And that was, I did, I did start to get like after a few years more work doing that because people realized that that's what I was really good at and that's what less people were good at. So hmm. I'd get jobs working on records in the studio as well as just live stuff where people are like, I want to get this sound, but I don't know how to do it. What should I use? Hmm. And that stuff was really fun. Um, but again, the same of anything, I, I'm not in any way like criticizing it, but I'm, you know, I'm not a good person to be in an environment where I'm always doing the same thing because that's just not the way my my mind works. You know, like I always like learning something new. I always like being thrown into a different scenario. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just less stimulating for me when I feel like I'm doing stuff that I've done a lot and I've already done for a long time. Yeah. And so how when once you started doing that and ended up in the States, what how did it how did you bring your music to the foreground? How did you start to do your thing again and make and make records and that sort of thing? I mean, honestly, in it's in its like most simple summation, I basically spent fifteen years helping other people make their music and then spent all of that money making my own music that didn't make any money <laughs> that's i mean honestly that was kind of that was the scales for me it was kind of like well you know this isn't really what i want to be doing but like i've done i've done okay at it i'm you know i'm getting big big gigs i'm making good money like that's the only way i could really afford to to invest in my own music um and also it felt like it was the only thing that justified me doing something i didn't really want to do you know um not, like I said, in, when I say I, I didn't want to do it, in no means am I saying other people shouldn't want to do it. Like I said, you know, it's a great career, and you, if you don't mind traveling a lot and, and having to deal with how that affects your relationships and your personal life and stuff, you can do really well at it. You can make great money, and there's, there's a lot to say about it that's good. But yeah. for me, because my focus was always on wanting to do something else, it was just a means to an end to me where I was like, mm -hmm. well, you know, I'm working with some people I like, you know, I'm working with nice expensive gear. 
you know, I'm on the road, I'm learning about what that means, what it means to be on the tour. Like I, I had ample time every day to myself to be able to write and play guitar and, you know, do that kind of stuff. So I, I'd managed to find a way to sort of make those two lives coexist, but the teching was basically what paid for me to do the other one because you know, my creative route was very different to, to most, you know, I mean, these days it's so different because you can do everything independently. You can do everything for yourself, you know, pretty much with a laptop, you know, you can do anything. Whereas, you know, in the early two thousands, you know, streaming hadn't really hit like, you know, websites weren't a big thing. Social media wasn't a big thing. You know, there was still a much more organic sense of how you kind of, built a fan base for yourself and obviously because i hadn't gone that route of just saying well i'm gonna go get in a van and play and truthfully i was still kind of on that phase where i was like the guitar player so you know i was looking to join a band or to make a band or whatever rather than just saying well i can go and play on my own you know if i'd have been at that stage of my my own creativity when i was 18 or 19 then i absolutely would have just quit and been like i'm just going to go play music because that's what i'm ready to do right now but I guess I didn't really feel like I was, and I never really found that group of people to, to sort of make or join a band with that made sense to me. When you had been, uh, you know, touring with some of these acts from the the UK and the states, you got to see a lot of the country. And it, it sounds like uh, from an early part of our conversation that you were interested in California as a destination, but then you accidentally landed in uh, Nashville. How did that come about? I mean, yeah, I, I was very fortunate. Like first time I came to the states was '08. And then I came back in 010, I think two or three times. And then after that, it was like, you know, once the kind of Mumford train got rolling, even before I lived here, I was spending, I'd say probably at least four months of every year in the US anyway. So, um, you know, by that point, you know, I'd, I'd been around it a few times. You know, obviously you're, you're in and out of a lot of places, so you only really get a sort of taste of them. But, you know, I'd, I'd been around enough to be like, you know, this is kind of where I feel like I've I've got a connection with the people. This is where I like the climate, the weather. This is where I'm intrigued by, you know, the musicians or the art that's going on. And this is where, you know, I I wanted to sort of base myself thinking I could make a go of it. I mean, the main reason I wanted to move to the US was because after, you know, having having um you know kind of played here a, a little because i was i was really lucky even when i did tech because everybody majority of people i worked for were, were friends or friends of friends so even though i was there in a tech capacity everybody knew i could play and the majority of people were always quite supportive of that it wasn't like they felt threatened or they were like oh you don't really want to be here they were always just like well you can play a bit of everything you're really good we need someone to jump up on this song or that song do you want to play so i'd managed to find a way to kind of merge the two Anyway, even within the context of being a tech, it wasn't necessarily to the point where I was opening and playing my own music, but I was at least like getting asked to play music with the people I was working with. So that that had given me an opportunity to play here some in the US. And then when I was getting to the point where I was starting to be able to like pick up my own shows on days off or open for people I was working for or whatever, it was very evident to me that there was a very there was almost like a subconscious like predisposition of of respect from people watching other people perform and that just wasn't something i'd experienced in england i mean you know from 2010 to, to the end of 2012 when i spent a few months in nashville and then moved in the january of 2013 i'd played a lot in england 
and you know you had one good gig in every 20 like it was so hard i was living in london you know i was like i need to be there because that's where everything's going on that's where the shows are that's where i'll you know pick up a fan base and stuff and you know and i did you know some low level touring around the uk and stuff and the majority of it was either playing to empty pubs or playing in noodle bars and you're like the background music to people eating and stuff like that and you know don't get me wrong you know i think all of that helped me kind of find my identity and hone my performance and get good at being able to play in different difficult scenarios also 80 percent of the gigs i've ever done as albatross i wouldn't have been able to do unless i was in a position where someone's like do you want to play and it i, I was like yeah because all i need is me and a guitar and then i can do a gig but i i immediately just had this kind of um happiness when I'd played in the U S and realized that there was just this different kind of innate attitude towards art. Like, you know, people didn't, I mean, some people do, but they didn't care so much whether they were like, Oh, he's good or he's bad or he looks cool or whatever. It was just like, obviously he spent a lot of time learning how to do what he does. We respect that. And so we're going to listen to him. So California was a place I'd always felt a lot of kind of, I don't know, like, don't sound too much like a hippie but like kind of like cosmic sort of synergy i was like this feels that's good, like that's it. a good california association yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's true. nice uh I, I just you know i don't know i love the weather i was like you know especially coming from england who doesn't want to be somewhere where there's 300 days of sunshine you know i was close to the ocean because i spent most of my time in la and i by that point i had some good friends there um i'd had some good experiences there i'd played some shows there you know, obviously there's a lot of history, a lot of, a lot of uh, work, a lot of industry. And I was like, well, this seems like a place I feel like, you know, I would, I would do okay. Or I could at least try to. Um, and that was really where I wanted to go, but it was just very apparent. Um, as I sort of started to look into that, that there was just no way I could afford to do that. It wasn't like I was coming to the U S with a kind of, you know, a, a, a nest egg sort of to sit on, whilst I was trying to get somewhere, I was like, I need to go there and I need to try and start doing stuff straight away. And so Nashville was a place I'd spent a lot of time and, and always really had fun. Um, and I had a lot of friends there. And it, again, this was like 2010 to 2012. So, you know, by no means were these people like old school Nashville, but in the context of how it's changed over the last decade, you know, they were yeah. people that at least moved there with, you know, the idea of respecting the way it's always been mm -hmm. and, and taking the same approach to trying to get into music there, to honor that to the people that were already there. Mm -hmm. And then thus kind of keeping that sacred, which is the whole reason the town has that identity anyways. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that so, was also what, uh, that was my approach. That was what attracted me here. I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to be a popular guy if I roll into town you know, with an accent and, and, you know, throw my weight around undercutting people to try and get work and be, be like, Oh, I'm better than this guy, or you should get me cause I'll do it for $50 less or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, th these are the few people I know here that have kind of trusted me with their reputation in that scenario. And so I need to sort of have the same respect for the situation that they have. Cause that's the only reason it's lasted for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Sadly, I wouldn't say it's like that anymore. That was one of the main reasons I felt like I had to leave. But anyway, the the Nashville thing just came about because 
I had numerous friends there. I'd spent a lot of time there. In the end of 2012, I did a bunch of the early recordings and demos for Desperate Times in Nashville with some friends. And I spent maybe three or four weeks there on some downtime from tour. And then literally on that trip, I was having some pizza at a place called Mafiosa's with some, some oh, friends. Yeah. Sure. And they, they were just like, dude, you should move here. It's like, we could definitely get you work. And I hadn't yeah. really considered it up until that point. And then I was kind of like, well, actually, it's way cheaper here. I know way more people. There's just as much music. And I've got people telling me that they could help me kind of get a leg up. I just booked a flight and a one-way flight and just came with everything I could carry. I bought a camera bag that had like a laptop, a couple of cameras, um, headphones, you know, and that was about it. I bought um, two, I bought one guitar, I bought one lap steel, which I carried on, and I bought a bag full of clothes and that was it. And I was sleeping on like a twin mattress on the floor with like no furniture or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Nashville. Yeah, I was like, it was so, it was so exciting at that point, and it, and it's really hard to not be disappointed to sort of see what it's become. But, yeah. but at that point, I couldn't have been happier to be there. The first three or four years, I had, uh, you know, I really did feel like I was making fairly good headway towards that goal of being like, you know, I can, I can tip the scales in in the direction of the thing I want to do more or more of, and and it, and I felt I was building a fan base, but it, you know. And so Desperate Times Best Forgotten was recorded in Nashville. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did it with a guy called Garrett Miller, who's an awesome dude, really good studio engineer and a pretty good player as well. And he was a friend of Ross Holmes, who was the fiddle player with Mumford. So I was really tight with him because we'd been on the road for over two years together. Um, and when I was coming that, that period of 2012, um he was like oh you know i've got a really good buddy he'll give you a good day rate to do some demos or whatever so i got hooked up with garrett and then um we started sort of working towards what would become desperate times
And the tunes themselves, the, these were things you'd accumulated over the last 15 years, touring around, or were these all more recent things to that to that time period? There was definitely a few that I, you know, because I, generally I'm like, I, I, I always think it's, I, by no means did I, you know, make this up, and I'm sure I read someone else said it before, but, you know, I, th- I try to finish everything, even if I know it's not very good or, or it's really hard or whatever. I'm like, I find that if I don't kind of see it through to its end, even if it ends up being a bad song, some of those ideas end up popping up again when I'm working on other stuff and kind of, you know, being the spanner in the works, you know, because, you know, subconsciously, I guess you're still trying to squeeze something in you thought had something and you hadn't ever taken it to the point where you realized that it, it wasn't good enough. So you should just leave it alone and move on. So you know, I'd long since sort of learned how to write on the road, um, which is a problem for a lot of bands that I saw, you know, that we can only write when we go home or if we're in the studio. And I was like, well, I'm always on the road and I'm all, and I always have a guitar. So, you know, I just got to the point where I played all the time and it didn't really matter where I was. It wasn't so much an environment as I just had to make sure I had the tools I needed when, you know, when the moment struck me, you know. So a lot of the songs you know, had been come out of that environment, but but the majority of them were relatively fresh for that period. I mean, I'd gone through a bad breakup with a long-term girlfriend in the UK before I came to the US. Um, And in many ways, I felt like that was a huge kind of, you know, shift in my life. I mean, obviously, logistically moving country, but but also just that I, I was hoping that that would be, you know, my, my, also my transition from, this yeah. kind of tech music balance to to just being someone else in a new place doing the thing I'd always wanted to do. So yeah. the songs were a mixture of both. Well, Brian and I were commenting on that, you know, this was kind of a time capsule of a particular emotional state, particularly when you look at songs like Ain't Got No Use, Game of Love, Waiting on a Love That'll Never Come. There, there's, there's, it seemed to capture a bad spot uh, in uh, in life. I think that's just where I was at like because you know my back was against the wall obviously because I didn't have anywhere to live I just got out of a long-term relationship where I lived with the partner um and also I felt this huge like sort of unsettling undercurrent in my life where I where you know when things aren't going your way you analyze everything else that's going on in your life and then at those points it's easy to then you know you start to look at your job even if it is good and you're doing well at it and you're kind of like man I'm still doing something I don't really want to do and it's 10 years later um and I think you know I've I've never really been a kind of play it safe guy you know with the exception of that one time when I was in uni and maybe Part of the reason why I've always thrown caution to the wind after that was because in hindsight, I felt like I'd made the wrong decision and maybe missed out on something. But, hmm. you know, I'm not a big regret guy, but, you know, yeah. after that, I was kind of like, well, do you know what? You know, like when the national came up, it thing came up, it was so kind of random that I was just like, yeah, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it. 
Um, and it was really exciting, even though I felt like I was leaving something behind. Um, it turned out to be a good thing. And it wasn't like I never I never felt like I was like emotionally running away. Maybe I felt it would at least be like a healthy distraction. But, you know, I think I did realize later that I was kind of like, well, you know, depending on what your troubles are, you know, some you carry with you wherever you go. So, um, and I, you know, I've even been feeling that since I've been in California, you know, a place I always wanted to be, you know, my life is really good. And, you know, in a lot of regards now, you know, I have a, you know, amazing dog that I love and he's my sidekick and my best friend, you know, Jess is like, you know, you know, just the best thing that's ever happened to me. And then on top of that, we have the bus now, which in many ways was the way we kind of got away from that life that I kind of fell into that I didn't want. And it allowed us to do that because we can remain, we can have a relatively good quality of life without having to make too much money because we live small and we own the bus. So, you know, like that gives me different options, but, but I still have those, you know, I still have a lot of things where I'm kind of like, well, I've made this big shift, but now I don't really, I'm, I'm glad that my life isn't what it was but I still don't know what I want it to be. And there's some power in that, but there's also some uncertainty. So, you know, sure. it makes me anxious. Yeah. And where do you see, how do you see the music unfolding? You, you, you built a studio into the bus. Obviously that's a, a part of the, your vision. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a necessity really. Cause I was like, you know, I've got all this gear and I don't want to get rid of it. And also, you know, certainly at the time I started building the bus, you know, I was, I was still, you know, doing more of that in terms of, on the regular uh, as what was my living you know obviously COVID kind of changed that for everyone so you know it made a very a different picture of life on on the backside of COVID as to mm -hmm. where I felt I was quite close to getting to pre-COVID and it, and it you know I think it you know it made me have like a fairly major shift of what my priorities were um and that's not to say that music isn't still my first love and will always be something that I do and something I'm very passionate about. I think maybe I just feel differently about, you know, not taking for granted the things that I think are important about it and the things that I love about how it enriches my life. Um, but also not glazing over all the things that you hate about the music industry. You know, like I'm, I've always been hugely ambivalent about it just because you know, in, in the most utopian way possible, I just, you know, business and art don't mix for me. Um, but obviously the logistics of wanting to make a living out of your art means that they have to coexist in some way. But for me, it's always like chess boxing, you know, it just doesn't, just doesn't go. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, having the studio was a necessity because of the gear I had, you know, because of the way we designed the bus and, you know, putting the van on the roof, so the beds and mezzanine and stuff, it was a way to make it work. And, and when you, when you live that small, you, you have to prioritize the things that mean the most to you. So, you know, I didn't really care about having a huge kitchen. I was like, you know, I want to have my Macintosh stereo and my record player in a bus, you know, with <laughs> 500 vinyls, you know, it's like, yeah. how am I going to make that work? But those, those mm -hmm. are the things that, you know, me, me and Jess are both huge music fans and, you know, that right. was a collection I had over years. And I was like, you know, I don't want to sell this. So I'm going to figure out. You don't out. need food. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, which is us. 
Craft Brewed Music is a curated streaming service that streams better music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. There are a couple of ways to hear more Craft Brewed Music. You can download the app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free trial. Or you can become a patron of the podcast on Patreon, linked in the description of each episode, and get exclusive bonus episodes containing extra music and a sampling of our other artists. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brewed Music, better music for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbrewedmusic.com. Listening to tunes from On the Run, I'm, I'm struck by there seems to be a more adventurous spirit about uh, arranging and about, you know, taking tunes that could be could be realized as a as a as a country tune or an Americana tune, and then all of a sudden it's kind of a cappella with a little stringer interlude, and the brass comes in. You get a little a Sergeant Pepper's moment there. Yeah. Like, uh, all, all, all I am is what you is what you make from me, which I, I love. I love things like that that uh, I think are too often absent from uh, modern production is like, let's, let's do something a little weird here and see what happens. I'm sure it's hard for you to understand But this ain't something that I had planned It's the look you show that allows me to go and prosper out you far from my homeland you never know how much it means However little it seems To know you're always there And you're only care Is I'm happy What you made for me A result of the lessons That taught me how to be Oh, that I could Without them, I doubt that I would Be standing here grateful For what I carry Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, as with life in general You know, we I feel like we're over-evolved And I feel like that means that in many ways we kind of move backwards um so it's 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 kind of like it's weird for me like you know obviously the more that the industry becomes prevalent within music rather than the art the more the art becomes consumer led rather than you know people being struck by something that somebody else's vision and then loving it and wanting to pay it forward and stuff you know we, we we've we've created this like construct of you know something that majority of people are happier with happy with because you know they've got a formula where they can you know repeat to fade and and it's profitable so to a lot of people i suppose that's like that's the goal it's like well i wanted to make music i'm making music and i'm making money so it's all good but for me like because i never really cared about money and i never did it because well it never made any money anyway but even if it had like I, i don't think that was ever something that was a consideration for me so so I've always had this weird thing around, you know, what it means to be an artist and what it, you know, and, and how that contextually works when you have to make money. So, you know, whenever anyone asks me, you know, what advice would you give to anyone else? Not that, you know, I'm in a position to bestow wisdom or whatever, but, 
you know, my experiences are always like, well, if if music isn't a reward enough in its in itself, then you're doing the wrong thing, basically. And for people that get into it for just money, it don't make any sense to me either. You know, I'm like, there's way easier ways to make money than trying to be a musician. So I don't know. I guess I just have never really felt any kind of connection with with that side of it. But you know, music is art, and everyone receives it in a different way. So. You know, although I find it frustrating that I feel like there's sort of some perversion of what I love about music and the way that music used to be made and the way people used to make records, you know, that bravery, that experimentation, that adoration for another artist and wanting to work with them or do something they do or copy them or take influence from them and be open about it rather than this competition of, you know, I have to say everyone else's shit and say I'm the best otherwise, you know somebody isn't writing about me on Twitter. I mean, I, I know I'm generalizing, but that stuff just doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. I, I also don't really get social media. I hate it. I think it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the human race. <laughs> I just say, you know, I sound like I'm a hundred years old, but like, I just, I, it doesn't make, it, it just does not make sense to me. Like all of the artists I love as a kid, the reason I would save up my pocket money and make my dad take me an hour to the nearest big record store where I could buy a record I'd been excited about for two months that came, I bought it on the day it came out. You know, the reason all of that was there is because of the love of the love of something else. And it was, it was really beautiful and really anonymous and, and the mystery of that artist, because you didn't see what they had for breakfast on, on Instagram was part of the reason you were always excited. It was like when someone did an interview that never did interviews, you were like, I've got to read this because I don't know. I don't know anything about this guy, but I'm fascinated because his music connects with me or her music, or their music, whatever it connects to me on such a level that I, you know, I'm fascinated. None of that's there yeah. anymore. Every, everyone's got zero attention span. Everybody wants instant gratification. You know, if it doesn't grab you in two seconds, you're already lost to, you know you've lost interest and yeah. it's really well, sad because the beauty of what has always been art to me and still is doesn't seem to be now what's conventionally recognized as the thing you should appreciate within within the art and subsequently it doesn't have any value and that that makes it very hard for the people that want to make it and feel that way about it when you have to exist in a world where other people use it as a cash cow yeah i think I think amongst the the listeners of of uh, of the world though there's still a thirst for that uh, that experience and I think the nostalgia about the you know your your older sibling bringing home that album that you listened to for the first time blew your mind or like that college roommate who was into Tom Waits and you heard for the first time where he started like you know then you run out and get the album for yourself yeah, like that yeah. that kind of that kind of magic is and the nostalgia of that magic is what what brought Brian to creating the craft food music platform was to like, I want to like, I'm so excited about this music. I want to share it with you. Yeah. yeah so you mate, I, excited too. It's, it's amazing. I couldn't agree more. Like, and, and I like from the first time you and I spoke, Brian, like I remember, I think it was Adam Chaffins that told me about your project and, hmm. and he was like, you should talk to this guy. He's doing something really cool. And I, I was immediately like, yeah, this is what, this is what we need more of. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I don't, I, I don't mean to sound negative. Like that isn't there. Like there isn't the people that still want to do that. I think that there's, you know, this what seven in, in odd the, billion people in the world. There's there's definitely a lot of that. I yeah, just feel no, in like the, in the business, it feels like there's a headwind, you know. And I'm sure as exactly it feels like there's a headwind. yeah. That's and the more and the more we kind of move down to this like singularity idea of what the industry is, how it has to work, 
the, the less variation there is in every aspect of it. So then it, the, the problem is it is with, with any, the same with anything. And I, this is my fear of how, you know, music will, you know, progress in a post COVID environment. I think that there will still be the people like you guys and me and many other people that, you know, have those really fond memories and literally like zeitgeist moments in their life where I was like, everything was different after I heard this or everything was different after I saw this person. There'll still be the people that want to make music that way, listen to music that way and everything in between. But I think it's going to become more underground because it's, it's, uh, it's too, um, it's strangled. It's, it's stifled in the environment that has become this modern idea of how we perceive and listen and make art. Um, there's so much noise around it and there's so much noise to cut through to make anybody aware of anything. Exactly. Um, yeah. I feel the same. I mean, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like you, you know, everything ever done ever is on YouTube. Do you know what I mean? So if I had had YouTube when I was a kid, you know, the access I would have had to, you know, learning how to play this or seeing how this guy played this or, you know, someone sending you a music video or anything. Oh, it's almost like sensory overload. And in a way, I feel that's why, although it is an amazing resource, it almost acts counterintuitively because you would think that that would, you know, kind of, you know, blow your mind open because I'm like, well, I have everything I would ever need on a four-inch device in my pocket <laughs> that works everywhere I go, unless you're where I live. And... <laughs> um, and in a way, I think that that makes it worse because because it was that chase, it was that passion to hunt something down that m makes people feel like music makes people feel about music the way that we do, you know. And and although there is still uh, loads of that, I feel like it's just it's just getting harder to find. Um, you know, that's why I'm really thankful to you know that there are people like you that you know care about trying to find a way to present. A musical platform for people that feel the same like me otherwise you know how how do you get it out there i mean that's that's the problem i face every time i make music i'm like you know i feel like on the run is the best record i've made the best my songwriting has been you know i did a lot of the production and used a home studio you know so there was so many milestones i felt like i reached as a musician and a creative and a performer but then when you you're finished you're like well i have a great record but what do i do now because, you know, if you want to go the independent route, you know, it's an insane amount of work and you need to spend an insane amount of money. And if you don't go the independent route, you have to try and find a label that you want to work with. And then you're stuck back in that, you know, sort of, you know, plaster cast mold of, of how they want to do things, which is something I don't feel I connect with. And, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not trying to make out that, you know, I had a bunch of offers and I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, it wasn't really something that necessarily even really emerged. And I'm sure in part due to my own lack of compromise, you know, but, but I care more. Music has only, been, it's been one of the only things that's ever made sense to me in my life. And I am never comfortable when I'm posed with a position where I have to maybe compromise how I feel about it or how I do it. And then the knock-on effect of that being me having disdain for the art because I've allowed my my approach to it to be perverted. So, you know, I, I'm stubborn and, I, you know, and I'll admit it, but I would much rather, you know, 
10 people hear my music, however they find it and absolutely love it, then, you know, millions of people being like, oh, I heard you in Walmart. Like, I don't, you know, just, uh, you know, just, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not, I'm not saying anyone else should feel the same, but that's how, that's how I feel about it. Come with a master plan A grand design for how to make it pan Out the way you want it to Well son, that's left up to you It's a race of undetermined length That'll test your mind and test your strength Leave you feeling all alone But always find a way to bring you home We'll be careful not to waste it while planning how to make it Cause it only comes once And it don't last long Always remember it ain't something You can hold on hold Don't let it pass you by Don't you be thinking you gotta be It'll take the Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.